This is an ABC podcast. G'day and welcome to Between the Lines. This is Tom Switzer and it's always great to have you on the show. Now, coming up later, is Western hostility towards Russia, is that just driving Moscow closer to China's strategic orbit? Stay tuned for Tony Kevin, a former Australian diplomat who believes that now's the time to adopt detente towards Russia. But first, Taiwan. With China's rise as a great power, it's showing more and more attention towards reclaiming territory that it's long regarded as its own. Witness Beijing's conduct in the South China Sea, the East China Sea, Hong Kong, the Himalayan border with India, and of course, Taiwan. 15 Chinese planes were detected flying into Taiwan's Southwest Air Defense Identification Zone, or ADIS, on Sunday. Taiwan's Ministry of National Defense said Sunday's incursion involved 12 fighter jets, two anti-submarine aircrafts, and a reconnaissance plane. This comes less than 24 hours after the People's Liberation Army Air Force flew 13 combat aircraft, including Chinese bomber planes, capable of carrying nuclear weapons into the same region. That was from the South Korean English-language Rang news account of China's recent intimidation of the lively liberal democracy of nearly 24 million people. Now, one of my guests today has warned the Australian Defence Department that Beijing is highly likely to attempt to take over Taiwan using all means short of war as early as 2024. Ponder that, a Chinese takeover of Taiwan by 2024. Linda Jacobson is the specialist who delivered this assessment to the Morrison government a few months ago. Linda is founding director and deputy chair of China Matters, and she joins us from Finland. Hello, Linda. Welcome back to Between the Lines. Thank you for having me again, Tom. And joining us in Sydney is Natasha Kassam, a research fellow at the Lowy Institute. Hi there, Natasha. Thanks for having me, Tom. Now, Linda, you recently published a China Matter Explores policy brief. Summarise succinctly your thesis. Tom, we've been talking for a long time that Taiwan is possibly an explosive issue in our region. I'm saying it again now because the PRC president, Xi Jinping, has made it clear that contrary to his predecessors, he does not think we can leave the unresolved political status of Taiwan to future generations. He wants to see movement towards what the Chinese say, reunification of the mainland and Taiwan during his lifetime. That's the first point. The second one is that as of late, probably because of some of the recent events which you alluded to, among others, the PRC's actions in Hong Kong, there's been a lot of talk of war, of outright military conflict between Taiwan and the PRC. I think these media reports have put the problem into the wrong perspective. I think it is unlikely that we will see outright war over Taiwan's future, but we are very likely to see Beijing making a move which is a protractive, extensive, intensive campaign of pressure using all means short of war, to bring the Taiwanese political leadership to its knees and agree to negotiate. Nothing more. Without 
preconditions, the Taiwanese leadership has already said they will negotiate. But the PRC wants to negotiate on the basis that there is only one China. In other words, the negotiations have to end in some sort of agreement about unification. So that, in a nutshell, is what the policy brief argues. We should prepare for this kind of a protracted, extensive, intensive pressure campaign using all means short of war. Okay, so Natasha, you've heard Linda's assessment there of the Chinese threat to Taiwan that a Chinese military invasion of Taiwan's unlikely, highly unlikely. So expect Beijing to launch a a step-by-step coercion of Taiwan using all means short of war to force uh, Taiwan's leadership into negotiations to accept reunification. Natasha, what's your response? I'm inclined to agree with Linda that this kind of phased coercion with many policy measures that China can easily scale up is the most likely scenario. And we can already see that happening. We can already see China attempting to launch multiple cyber attacks in Taiwan to economically coerce Taiwan, to try to put pressure in terms of media coverage, and even to you know, infiltrate some of those local level groups to try to turn politics in a different way in Taiwan. All of these grey zone measures to date have been relatively unsuccessful. China made it very clear that they were against the current president, Tsai Ing-wen, and that they were going to punish the Taiwanese for voting for her. These kinds of measures only encourage the Taiwanese people, the vast majority of which do not want to be a part of China, to turn out in support and vote for Tsai Ing-wen last year. And at the same time, we've also seen the country really come together during this COVID-19 pandemic. And we've seen a really incredible level of trust in institutions and in their democratic system of government in a way that perhaps we haven't seen in other countries. So I'm inclined to agree with these Mm. being the right measures. But on the other hand, I would say that the military option very much remains on the table, not perhaps in the short term. But from China's perspective, the incredible buildup of the People's Liberation Army that we've seen over the past decade has very much been directed at a potential Taiwan contingency. To the extent that the scenario that Linda lays out here, and you, and you agree that it's all things considered, it's plausible, and just say for argument's sake, Beijing adopts an aggressive mix of you know new technologies, conventional methods to apply pressure on Taiwan. Uh, Linda, what can the United States and allies such as Australia do in response? This is the point, Tom, that I make in the China Matters policy brief, that because it will be a mix of um, both traditional and unconventional pressure actions, it will be very difficult for the United States or anyone else, Australia included, to respond to any one single action. And so we will see a real struggle on the part of Washington, D.C. and others to respond. I'll give you just one example. If Beijing turns the lights out in Taiwan, in other words, takes out all electrical facilities through cyber attacks, will the U.S. respond militarily to that, to that one action or not? I build up one possible scenario in that policy brief explaining how the idea is to create chaos, fear of a real war in Taiwan so that the political leadership would agree to negotiations. So it's very difficult to see how the U.S. would respond. Obviously, rhetorically, they will condemn it. Would they enforce economic sanctions? Quite possibly. 
but it will be very difficult to respond to because it will be a series of actions. And sometimes it will be ramped down and sometimes ramped up. That's how I foresee it happening. Well, Natasha, just say Linda's scenario is right and Beijing adopts this incremental approach of just forcing Taiwan to accept reunification diplomatically, or just say, you know, I mean, you didn't rule out the idea of a, of a PRC, People's Republic China, uh, amphibious invasion of Taiwan. Is the United States legally committed to the military defence of Taiwan? Look, I could launch a long argument for the moral values-based reasons that the United States should defend a democracy like Taiwan, but the answer is no. The United States is not committed to the military defense of Taiwan. The Taiwan Relations Act commits the United States to providing arms to Taiwan in order to defend itself. And I should mention that President Joe Biden in 1979 was one of the people to sign that act. And so there is a commitment to the self-defense of Taiwan, but there's no requirement for the United States to come to its aid should it come to this kind of a scenario. Now, Xi Jinping has declared, quote, reunification is the historical trend and it's the right path. But given that Taiwan has really only been part of China for, when you think about it, four out of the past 125 years. So from 1895 to the end of World War II, Taiwan was a Japanese colony. Since 1949, the nationalists who lost the civil war to the communists, they fled to Formosa, now known as Taiwan, to create the Republic of China. So given that history, Linda, why is China so obsessed about taking over Taiwan? Ah, now you've really asked a complicated question (laughs) and I will try my best to answer it briefly. Number one, the historical trend that Xi Jinping is referring to goes back much longer than the past 125 years. Taiwan was part administratively, albeit loosely, of the Ming dynasties, the Qing empire as well. So there is historical grounds for what the people in the People's Republic of China mean when they say that Taiwan has nearly always been part of China. Now, what's important here, though, is that Taiwan is a bleeding sore as far as the PRC is concerned because it's part of the Chinese civil war which in a way has never ended because the losing party, like you said, the nationalists fled to Taiwan and established the Republic of China. So to end that civil war, to gain closure, the Communist Party of China has to oversee reunification. And this is very directly linked to the credibility of the Communist Party in the eyes of people who live in the People's Republic of China And because of that, it is really a question in their minds, in the minds of the leaders of the Communist Party, of life and death. Well, Natasha, you've heard Linda there, and she's not alone. Many China scholars would agree that the Chinese, to a person, care deeply about this so-called renegade province. And, of course, China is a country that's pumped up on nationalism, right? So the question here is, if China continues to grow at a rapid rate, Natasha... Isn't Taiwan in deep trouble? I feel like we already can agree that Taiwan is in deep trouble. You know, a country that has fought for its own democracy, that has been independent for the last seven decades and is constantly having to divine itself by its nearest neighbour's claims over it. 
And you're absolutely right. China will become the largest economy in the world in the next decade. It will become the largest military power in the world in the not too distant future. All of this are very much concerning trends. But of course, China's power does not grow unchecked. There have been multiple examples where international pushback has been able to restrain and constrain some of China's ambitions in this sense. There's no reason to think this is inevitable. And I have to, to some extent, push back on the idea that history points to Taiwan being a part of China because, you know, this is a very kind of selective description of history where, I mean, just by contrast, Hong Kong has been a part of China for 1900 years, more than Taiwan has been. This is very much a benchmark that the CCP has set for itself. They have put their own conditions on this rejuvenation of the nation as including Taiwan. And by framing it, I think, in the context of the Chinese Civil War, we very much overlook this long history of Taiwanese people before that through various waves of colonization, influences from Japan, from the Portuguese, from the Dutch, and of course, the indigenous Taiwanese people. There is a whole Taiwanese history that exists separate to China. And so framing it as a part of China historically, I think, misses some of that incredible independent Taiwanese identity that has developed over the last hundred years. My guests are Natasha Kassam from the Lowy Institute and Linda Jacobson from China Matters. Linda, how would you respond to Natasha then? Oh, absolutely. What I described a moment ago was the PRC view, as you asked for it, Tom. I certainly concur with Natasha. The history of Taiwan has to be looked at from a holistic perspective. There are huge number of varying interpretations of history, as they are in any country. But from the PRC point of view, as you asked me to explain that, um, certainly Taiwan has for a very, very long time, being part of that China, now not part of the People's Republic of China. And that's where it becomes quite complicated. Yes, but isn't uh, China its own worst enemy by intensifying these military exercises and efforts to isolate Taiwan diplomatically? Linda, I mean, won't that just stiffen the resolve of the Taiwanese to reject Beijing? I mean, Natasha and I were in Taipei in January last year to witness President Tsai Ing-wen's landslide re-election, which, let's be frank, was in large part a response. It was a repudiation of China's growing intimidation of Hong Kong and Taiwan. So the question here is, isn't China its own worst enemy, Linda? Absolutely. The mixture of carrots and sticks, which Beijing has for already at least two decades quite intensely applied to, quote unquote, uh, winning the hearts and minds of the Taiwanese people, um, has backfired, has not succeeded. And we hear less about those economic incentives that Beijing at the same time is offering Taiwan. But watching Hong Kong and the actions of the People's Republic of China in Hong Kong certainly stiffened the resolve, as you said, of Taiwanese that at this moment, under the rule of Xi Jinping, unification with the People's Republic of China is not anything that most Taiwanese would want. So I would say that Beijing is looking at a failed policy. I think we should never rule out that events can change. 
the Berlin Wall also did come tumbling down once and no one predicted that. Mm. So mm. diplomatic pressure has to be still believed in and applied to Beijing to undertake negotiations on the future of Taiwan with no preconditions. This is something the Taiwanese have agreed to, but Beijing rejects. So we shouldn't give up on the possibility of a negotiated settlement. And we outsiders shouldn't also pass judgment on a negotiated mm. settlement as long as it happens without the coercion of the Taiwanese. Well, you've heard all that, Natasha. Is that in a way, Taiwan's best strategy? Could you argue just play the long game and hope that China comes to think that Taiwan's a lost cause and, and not worth a war or an occupation or, or heavy-hitting uh, diplomacy? Natasha? I absolutely think that's what many Taiwanese would say. You know, a senior Taiwanese official said to me last year, we just have to see who can hold their breath for longer, which is you know, a devastating thought. But absolutely, to think about Beijing's strategy here, Linda is correct. None of these efforts have served to win over Taiwanese hearts and minds. But if we also think about Beijing's objectives as preventing Taiwan from declaring independence, to date, that has been successful. And so what could be happening to some extent is on the one hand, Beijing continues to intimidate and coerce Taiwan, ensure that those parts of Tsai Ing-wen's party, the deep greens who really think more needs to be done in terms of pushing for independence, can be held in check. And at the same time, demonstrate to the Chinese public that China holds all of the cards. Taiwan is isolated diplomatically and has very few options. That could be very much an uneasy pace long term. But of course, this is becoming more challenging because young people in Taiwan who have only known the democratic country that is their own, they are no longer so patient. We often talk about the idea that Xi Jinping has time on his side, but I'm not sure that the Taiwanese people feel like time is on their side. I feel like there's a chance that patience is running out. Well, let's conclude with some remarks made by the distinguished journalist Paul Kelly writing in the Australian newspaper recently about Linda's thesis. He says, quote, If America declined to defend Taiwan, its status as a Pacific power would be ruined, but if it fought and lost, the damage would be worse. Kelly goes on to say, For Australia, either event potentially would constitute our most important strategic setback since the fall of Singapore in 1942. Ponder that. Natasha, Linda, thanks so much for being on Between the Lines. Thank you, Tom. Thank you, Natasha. Thank you so much to both of you. Linda Jacobson is Founding Director and Deputy Chair of China Matters, and Natasha Kassam is Research Fellow at the Lowy Institute. On RN, this is Between the Lines with Tom Switzer. Well, when Donald Trump was president, did you think he was Vladimir Putin's puppet? That was the media, conventional wisdom after all, wasn't it? And yet, when you think about US-Russia relations during the Trump era, tensions only increased, right? Despite the conciliatory rhetoric, Trump policy was really quite hard towards Russia. You think about it. NATO expanded further east. Washington strengthened sanctions on Moscow. It supplied the Ukrainian military with lethal weapons. 
It boosted aid to the Baltic countries and, of course, launched missiles against the pro-Russian Assad regime in Syria, not once but twice. Those decisions, remember, outraged the Kremlin. So what are the prospects of a reset in US-Russia relations in the Biden era? After all, the Biden administration recently embraced an unconditional five-year extension of the New START nuclear arms treaty. Biden took the longest extension possible. Tony Kevin is a former Australian diplomat and he's author of Return to Moscow. Tony, welcome back to ABC's Radio National. Thank you, Tom. It's a pleasure. Tony, in your judgment, is there any prospect of a Western or US-led rapprochement towards Russia? Tom, in my view, very little. And the reason is that Trump was essentially a weak president in the foreign policy area. He was pretty much the captive of the of the military-industrial-intelligence uh, media complex, which is highly anti-Russian. And all those things you mentioned in your introduction that happened in the Russian-American relationship will essentially continue under Biden, with the exception that it might be a little bit more smoothly packaged. And with one other exception that's important, Biden does seem to be keen on keeping some sort of arms control progress uh, on track. He, he has agreed to the, the full-term extension of New START, which is what Russia wanted to happen, but Russia was not going to make any new compromises to that end. They made that clear. They said, no, this is an existing treaty and we will not negotiate any changes to it, but we would like to see it extended five years. Now, Biden agreed to that when he spoke with uh, Putin a few days ago. On the other hand, Biden is going to go on with all the anti-Russian pressures around Russia's borders and in terms of disinformation and attempted regime change of important states in Russia's neighbourhood like Belarusia and the Ukraine thing is going to go on being ugly, unfortunately. Your line on this subject that the West, led by America, has uh, recklessly drifted into a an unnecessary new Cold War confrontation against Russia. I get that. But see, your critics would say, hasn't Russia under Putin turned away from the West and become more aggressive, not just at home, but abroad? It did, after all, invade Ukraine in 2014. Russia under Putin in 2001 initially started quite well disposed to the West. What Putin asked of the West was normal respect and normal diplomatic relations. And as he strengthened his control over Russia, as he brought the unpatriotic oligarchs under control and replaced them with what he regarded as more patriotic oligarchs, as he showed a capacity to improve, restore Russian morale and get Russia off its knees, the stronger and more confident he became, the more the West hated and feared him. So it's not anything that Putin did. It's the fact of what Putin was. He was a strong patriotic leader and they could not stand that. Well, your view is a minority view, Tony. Uh, Catherine Belton, author of Putin's People, How the KGB Took Back Russia and Then Took on the West. This is what Catherine Belton told Between the Lines about a year ago. It's now led to this great period of stagnation and now this year, deep economic recession in which many members of the Russian elite kind of see no future. They don't don't believe that Putin has any vision uh, for developing the Russian economy and 
one former government official sighed to me. He said, look, this is what happens when you have a KGB men running the country. All they know how to do is, is run block op black operations. All they know how to do is, is to take over cash flows and then use it to uh, these cash flows to preserve their own power and also divert it to try and sow chaos in, in, in countries that they perceive as being their enemy, i.e. The, the West. So unfortunately, that's the juncture that we've reached. That was Catherine Belton on Between the Lines on Radio National about a year ago. Tony Kevin. The fact that Putin has a KGB background, I don't hold that against him at all. In fact, George Bush the Elder was the head of the CIA at one stage. It didn't stop him being quite a good president of the United States. Putin's a very capable man, a very patriotic man. And uh, most of the people around him are competent and loyal and utterly dedicated to the security and sovereignty of Russia. Now, the Western narrative within which Catherine Belton sits has a very negative view of all this, and it's kind of like a, an echo chamber. There's an awful lot of them. There's a huge budget behind these people, and they bounce around each other and keep basically repeating each other's wisdom. And, of course, as Goebbels knew, the best way to make propaganda effective is to keep repeating it in a number of different ways until it sticks. And unfortunately, there is a Western accepted narrative, which I stand against, and um, Mary Dujewski stands against, and Stephen Cohen, God bless him, stood against. There aren't very many of us, but it doesn't mean we're wrong. We actually stand for a respect for Russia, for its many qualities, a, a willingness to engage in diplomatic, respectful, mutually respectful dialogue with Russia, and an end to the constant disinformation and subversion that uh, is aimed at Russia from the West. What about the uh, Russian opposition politician Alexei Navalny? This is what the Washington Post says, that Western governments should be doing what they can to help this unprecedented challenge to Putin's autocracy survive and grow. So the weight of public opinion in the West is very much against Putin and they support Navalny. Tony Kevin. Look, Navalny is not a serious politician. He's a serious exposer of corruption. And Navalny has never gained more than 2% of Levada polling, which asks, who would you wish to see as Russia's leader? Mm. He's entertainment, and he's a, basically a disruption agent. He's not serious. Final question. John Mearsheimer, Professor of Political Science at the University of Chicago, has said on this program and elsewhere that the West, uh, via NATO expansion, uh, helping topple pro-Russian regimes in Eastern Europe and the Baltics, it's just pushed Moscow closer to China and that half a century since Nixon and Kissinger played China off the Soviet Union, Biden and the West should now play Russia off against China. What's wrong with playing balance of power triangular diplomacy and trying to form a wedge between Moscow and Beijing. Tony? The West has lost any credibility to do that now. It's way too late. They could have tried to do that in the early years of Putin, from, say, 2000 to 2008. But once they started playing hostile games, regime change games in Georgia and in, and in Ukraine, Russia doesn't trust the West anymore. Russia will continue to be open to normal diplomatic exchanges with the West, and the Russian foreign ministry's door will always be open to serious and mutually respectful dialogue. 
But Russia will also be pursuing its warming relationships with China, Japan, Korea, other Asian countries, ASEAN. Increasingly, the world is going to look like an Anglo-Saxon rump of Five Eyes countries versus the rest of the world pursuing civilised diplomacy. Tony, thanks for being on Between the Lines today. Thank you, Tom. Tony Kevin, a former Australian diplomat, is author of Return to Moscow. Well, that's it for the show. And if you'd like to hear past episodes, including our earlier discussion on the increasing tensions between Taiwan and China, that was with Linda Jacobson and Natasha Kassam, just go to our website or go to the ABC Listen app or wherever you download your shows. Now, next week, please join us for my chat with the former Prime Minister, John Howard. Will mark the 25th anniversary of his government's election, a quarter of a century since Howard's landslide victory. My, how time flies. That's with me, Tom Switzer, with John Howard on ABC's Radio National next week. Hope you can tune in then. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.